You are listening to another installment of a little too quiet local author showcase where we are having authors from around Southeast Michigan come on to the podcast to read you original works of short fiction. So it's not an interview here or your typical Ferndale Library podcast episode. It is just an author reading a piece of short fiction. And today on the podcast, we have Laura Halpin Thomas, who is lecturer and program head of creative writing and literature at the University of Michigan, an academic advisor there. She teaches fiction and creative nonfiction. Her debut short story collection, States of Motion, came out on Wayne State University Press in 2017, debuted to strong national reviews, and was a finalist for a Forward Reviews Indie Award. It was actually also named a notable debut by poets and writers, and we'll be linking to more information about States of Motion, Wayne State University Press Made in Michigan Writers Series. And just on a side note, Thomas's work is also featured in a short story collection called Ghost Writers, Us Haunting Them, which is a title that we circulate here at the Ferndale Library, which we'll also have info in the show notes. Without further ado, Laura Holt and Thomas will take it away. My name is Laura Thomas, and I'm going to be reading um, two scenes from my short story called Underlying Conditions. And so I'm going to uh, pick up at the first scene and read the first uh, 15 pages or so, and then break to another scene later in the story. The CDC wouldn't add pregnancy to its official list until weeks after the birth, but Jen didn't need a government agency to tell her that the coronavirus pandemic had made what had been borderline about this baby downright risky. Six months in, and she was still sick to her stomach. Just before the state locked down, she'd chugged a jug of sweet syrup to prove she was on the border of gestational diabetes. High blood pressure put her on the border of bed rest. She couldn't very well deliver groceries from her mattress, she told her doctor on the last Zoom checkup. Her doctor thought Jen was joking which made Jen's blood pressure spike again. But it wasn't the doctor's fault that Jen's whole body was now an underlying condition. She was also borderline sick of how much this baby seemed to hate her. Why else would he lay purple tracks on her belly like a teen burning rubber, punch and grind and push acid up her throat, as if he were the almost fully formed person of month eight eager for the world, not the little nugget of month six happily settling into the work of becoming. Plus, she'd never stopped spotting after about week seven when she'd braced for a miscarriage that had never come. So maybe she had it backwards. Maybe her body hated this baby, and here she was, some mother, blaming him for battling for his survival. To make it all worse, since the lockdown, Michael, who was really Robert's dog, and barely gave Jen the time of day outside of mealtimes, clung to her. He'd leap in her lap while she helped the kids fill out the worksheets their teachers had assigned during the morning school Zoom sessions. As she colored shapes with Daniel, 
formed letters with Rebecca, watched Rosemary work her algebra, since Jen couldn't help out with any math more advanced than long division, Michael would plop his full Labrador weight on her knees and lick her silly. No amount of pushing him off and no Michaels and banishments to the backyard where he promptly set to barking at the snotty neighbor woman with the unpronounceable last name would make the dog leave her alone. Maybe her stomach acid smelled like raw wieners. Or maybe Jen's body was so hostile to this next child that even the dog sensed danger. Or maybe, she thought, as she leaned in to guide Rebecca in a cursive H and Michael slathered a kiss, he was just trying to get her to lighten up. Why does my name end in H? Rebecca asked. I can't even hear it. Before Jen could answer, Rosemary looked up from a string of mysterious alphanumerics. It's biblical. Does the Bible say why we can't hear it? Rebecca asked. Rosemary gave her sister a deadpan look. Yes, it does. This from the daughter who declared herself an atheist just last month. Not that Jen was devout. Jen lobbed her best cut it out stare. Your sister is just kidding, she said. I thought your name looked pretty with an H. An extra special something you don't have to hear to know is there. Like God, which is biblical. Rosemary solved for X without even breaking a sweat. I can't hear any H in God. Daniel looked up from the triangles and trapezoids he was supposed to be coloring with primary shades. Burnt sienna wasn't primary. Neither was raw umber. Daniel favored the orange-brown range of the crayon family. Jen couldn't see a reason to squelch his taste for a simple worksheet. Her childhood crayon set still had the hues Daniel liked most, mostly in the muted range of a non-primary color. The company had phased these colors out for peppier shades like Jazzberry Jam and Blutiful, colors that taught nobody anything like what the heck Umber and Sienna were. Would his teacher, a woman far too young to have learned about iron oxides from her crayon box, mark him down? Why were they giving kindergartners marks anyway, especially now? There isn't, honey, Jen told him. What your sister means is that you don't have to hear God to know he's there, just like Rebecca's H. But you have to see him, right? Rebecca was outlining her name with a blue crayon. I can see my H. Rosemary looked at her mother as if daring her to answer for faith on that one. You just have to see him once, Jen answered. Without thinking, obviously, Rosemary's brow shot up. I don't have to see him. I can draw him. Daniel grabbed the crayon box. Rebecca stared at her mother anxiously. When will I see him, Mom? Michael snuggled against her belly. The pressure was calming the baby's tumbles. For a brief moment, Jen didn't feel sick or panicked, palpitated or hated. She had no idea why she was being literal about God to her literal-minded young kids. Jen herself didn't hold faith, not in the traditional sense. A tradition her parents had taught her meant handcuffs in this life, not salvation in the next. Still, she said, you will, honey. Everybody does eventually. But when? Soon. Rosemary may have muttered Jesus Christ when she grabbed Rebecca's crayon. Hey, look, what's God spelled backwards? 
She spelled the answer out in enormous letters that violated every line on the cursive worksheet. Rebecca read, dog. She and Daniel burst into giggles. Rosemary bent back over her algebra. The younger kids flipped their papers over, fought for their favorite crayons. Not for the first time did, did Jen contemplate telling Rosemary to join the study bubble the neighbor kids had formed. Before the stay-at-home order, Rosemary had rejected any attempt to make friends in her new school. She complained she didn't fit in. Jen couldn't very well say that none of them fit into this new house. Families like theirs weren't supposed to move into neighborhoods like this. The house they'd been able to afford was so small, the kids and the dogs spilled out of it. Before the lockdown, they'd spent much of their time kicking plastic bottles filled with pennies around the front lawn, attracting the stares of neighbors who capped their children at one. The rare two-kid families in this neighborhood shopped as if they were maintaining an enormous household. Weekly grocery deliveries from the service Jen worked for far outstripped her own monthly haul from Walmart. Ten-seater savannas dwarfed her decade-old Honda Civic. Jen's family of three, with another on the way, branded them as salt-of-the-earthers too dumb or too redneck to curb their procreation, shrink their carbon footprint, and protect the Earth's dwindling resources. The childless woman next door, who never seemed to leave her house even before the stay-at-home order, used to poke her head outside to stare down Jen whenever she sat on the front stoop, minding that Daniel and Rebecca didn't chase their bottle into the street. The woman's eyeballing became worse when Jen asked Rosemary to watch the kids, as if asking an older child to babysit, rather than gear up for a travel soccer team, was child abuse. Before the lockdown, Rosemary had still hung out with her old crowd, Jen tolerated Rosemary's late nights and even shielded them from Robert because Rosemary was a perfect daughter, especially now. When Jen was at work, Rosemary helped the kids with their Zoom sessions, fed them, and tucked them in for the night. With Robert stranded in Canada, Jen needed the help. Rosemary never complained about the extra duties the pandemic had dumped on her. Maybe when school resumed in a few weeks after this whole thing was over, Rosemary would give her a new life another shot. In those early days, it was easy to believe that flattening the curve would get an old life back, not start an entirely new life no one knew how to fit into. Daniel was tugging at Jen's sleeve. Mom, look. He thrust his drawing at her. He had drawn Michael in bold black lines with a Jesus beard in place of whiskers. I drew God. That's God backwards, Rebecca corrected him. Jen's cell phone flashed dad, her digital label for Robert. When she answered, his voice rose and fell with the dodgy connection, like he knew exactly where the dead air lay. How are things, he said. Rosemary set down her pencil and turned off her calculator. I'm going to check the mail, she mouthed. Here, boy. Michael leaped off Jen's lap. She belched into the phone. The kids giggled and Rosemary rolled her eyes and went to fetch Michael's leash from the foyer. Sorry, Jen told Robert. Is the baby upsetting your stomach? Robert didn't know half of what the baby was doing to her. No use making him worry about her when he was stuck in lockdown too. 
I'm fine, just finishing up the morning school session before I head out. Don't you think you should quit, especially with the virus? The front door slammed. Jen moved to the foyer to watch Rosemary walk Michael up the street. Narrow, sparkling streams from an early morning storm still flowed along the curb. Across the street, impeccable paint jobs on manicured homes glimmered like they'd been run through a car wash. Already in late March, all the lawns except her brown stunted patch were green. What could she tell him? Robert's promotion had bumped his salary enough to cover this new mortgage, but not the bump in expenses that went with their lifestyle upgrade. Haven't you heard, she said, I'm an essential worker now. I'm serious, Jen, he said, stay home. Next, like her doctor, he'd be telling her to take to her bed. Her phone vibrated, another batch notification. Since the lockdown, delivery demand had skyrocketed. While her husband was urging her to quit, her manager was demanding she pick up extra orders, even in her condition. It's okay, really. Most of the cases are in Detroit and their old town, but she didn't want to tell Robert that. What about at the camp? He reassured her as she had reassured him. Not a lot of cases, not that they were testing or telling the workers much. They mused about the things everyone did in those early days. Maybe they were asymptomatic and had already had it. Neither knew anyone who was sick, but had heard that a young cousin of an old friend was vented and somebody's uncle, a marathon runner just shy of 50, had died last week. When they compared stories like these about healthy people succumbing to the virus, they wondered whether they were being told the whole truth about just how dangerous underlying conditions were. Some days they agreed that being healthy seemed to be the biggest risk factor. Today they skirted such speculation with pointless chit-chat about when Robert might be able to make it home. He usually worked a three-week shift, then came home for three weeks. The travel ban had been imposed just days before he was supposed to hop his usual flight to Michigan. Rosemary disappeared around the lazy bend like she'd been swallowed up by the manses on the sub's ritzier end. Those houses boasted pillars and carvings like they were airlifted from the classical period and dumped in this Ann Arbor exurb by mistake. Rosemary had been tugging Michael's leash impatiently. She'd been restless all day, no doubt bored with her Zoom classes. She'd click through websites when she was supposed to be watching a lecture, but Rosemary was a straight A type. She'd earned the right to deal with this pandemic in her own way. In the kitchen, Rebecca was sounding out words with Daniel. Barnyard was one. All was another, or maybe she was saying owl. Which one made more sense to farm life? Next door, the snotty neighbor emerged on her front porch, wrestling a mattress. Mona Bow something, the something being Slavic maybe, although the woman appeared to be ordinary Midwestern white bread. She tripped on the last step and nearly fell. Jen's phone buzzed again. Robert's voice cut out for a moment. Sweetheart, I have to go, she told him. She knew he did too. It was early morning in Alberta. He'd be at his desk in 15 minutes. Jen, you need to take this virus seriously, Robert admonished, as if she weren't. The neighbor had dumped the mattress at the curb, 
and was now dragging an oak bed frame down the sidewalk. Rebecca drawled out a line about the owl or the owl poking a ferret. What kind of curriculum used barnyard stabbings to teach kids the fundamentals? Should have to review what the teacher was sending them more carefully. The neighbor arranged the frame neatly by the mattress and hightailed it back to her house as if being out on her lawn was violating the stay-at-home order. The bed was smaller than a twin, perfect for Daniel, who was still in the crib that in a few weeks would belong to this new child. No way could they afford a new bed, and the local Goodwill didn't have any at the moment. Jen had been planning to transition Daniel to an air mattress in Rebecca and Rosemary's room, but here was a nice alternative. She checked her phone for new delivery batches. She added a few to her already full schedule, a mix of new customers and her regulars. The lazy bend gave her back Rosemary and Michael, one straining at the leash, eager to reach home, the other clutching a stack of letters and dragging her sneakers. Rosemary's sway was a woman's, Jen realized. Her round face still skewed so young, the chub in her cheeks and chin, the wide-eyed gaze, but without Jen noticing, her daughter's body had ditched girlhood. Jen hoped that body hadn't also ditched virginity. The neighbor slipped through her front door with a sheet of paper and a roll of bright blue duct tape. Rosemary stopped, checked Michael with a hard tug, as if he'd leap on the woman from several yards away. The neighbor attached the sign to the oak headboard. Free! Three exclamation points. Messy black scrawl, the F and the E's all loops and hooks, and what was with all the exclamation points? Maybe nothing in this neighborhood had ever been free before, so she had to proclaim the bargain. Rosemary watched her warily. Jen watched Rosemary, glad that someone else in the household disliked the snotty neighbor as much as Jen did. Still, free exactly matched Jen's price point. When the neighbor had disappeared inside and Rosemary pushed the door open, Jen said, Honey, can you help me a sec? Although Jen was standing next to the door's side window in full view, Rosemary startled and blanched. She tucked the mail under her arm and unleashed Michael. Are you spying on me, Mom? Can I play I spy? Rebecca was in the kitchen doorway, pushing Michael's snout away. I'm not spying on your sister, Jen said. We are not playing a game, Rosemary told her. Michael, off. Go lie down. Michael laid off Rebecca and laid down on Jen's slippers. Daniel ran into the foyer, waving a worksheet. What's a ferret? He asked Rosemary. It's like a weasel, only cute, she explained. Then why does the all want to get him? Because ferrets taste good. Rebecca burst into tears. Daniel said, what's a weasel? Hey, Rosemary, that's not nice. Jen pushed Michael off her slippers and stroked Rebecca's hair. Spying isn't either. Rosemary picked up the mail and slunk to the den. I spy something grumpy, Jen almost said. Hey, she said out loud to Rosemary's back, also looking very womanly as it marched stiffly away. She dried Rebecca's tears with the tiny slack the baby allowed her blouse and sent the kids back to school, so-called. The kitchen table strewn with snapped crayons and broken pencils and scribbles on worksheets, and Jen's failure to educate between Zoom sessions. Jen peered in the den with a choice before her, demand to know what's wrong with you or hug Rosemary tight. But the den was empty, 
Rosemary must have gone to her room. Jen told Michael to stay and went to the curb. She half expected the neighbor to fly out her front door the moment Jen touched her bed, as if free was reserved for the neighbors who didn't need a break. Still, when Jen hoisted the headboard, it was in fact a shock when the woman actually threw the door open and leaped off her porch, yelling, hey! Mona something skidded to a stop exactly six feet from Jen, wearing a bright cloth mask smattered with sunflowers. She stared at Jen's belly, her latest rude habit. It didn't help that the baby was slipping around like a gymnast on the rings. Hi, well, are you taking the bed? A sunflower's head was centered on her mouth. Peppy yellow petals undulated as she spoke. At least she'd managed to raise her eyes a tick to Jen's old milk-stained blouse and the button-popping boobs underneath the stains. Terrific. The fuzzy slippers weren't helping Jen's image either. The woman herself was dressed as if she'd just stepped out of a business casual meeting downtown, right down to the neutral leather naturalizers. Even her jeans looked pressed. May I? Jen asked, and then added, it says free. Of course, only in your condition. Mona glanced at Jen's mouth uneasily, probably wondering if Jen were one of those anti-maskers now bearing arms at the state capitol building, even though no one in those early days wore masks outdoors. Maybe Mona something had an underlying condition, or two. Let me help you carry it, Mona continued. It's heavy, so, I mean, if you're okay having me step in your house, we can social distance while we carry. LOL, right? Mona hoisted the frame and was walking up Jen's drive before Jen could put a stop to her. Jen dragged the mattress after her. Once inside, Mona leaned the frame carefully against the foyer wall and turned to help Jen heave the mattress through the door. The little kids crowded in the kitchen doorway wide-eyed at the strange vision of a neighbor being neighborly for the first time since they'd moved here. Even Michael, ears perked, tail thumping, stared from his bed in the den, too surprised to cavort. The woman took in the toys littering the den, the messy kitchen table, the dishes piled in the sink. The house was so small, every bit of the home's chaos was obvious from the front door. She stared at a pile of Legos like she'd never seen a castle in progress before. Can I help you set this bed up? A thin-skinned voice masking dismay. But Jen was worrying about the same thing the woman was judging. This bed wouldn't fit in the girl's room, and what passed for the nursery was already a renovated walk-in closet. She had no idea where to put Daniel. Jen crossed her arms over her stains and tatters, Wish she could sink right through the cheap vinyl floor the kids had succeeded in scuffing as if it were real wood. Oh, thanks, but no, my husband will take care of it. Rebecca said, why are you wearing a mask? Mona's expression behind the sunflower might be disbelief or it might be pity. To protect you from me, she explained. Your sunflowers are pretty, Rebecca said. Daniel inched towards Jen. Mona inched towards the door, maintaining her six feet from Jen's family. F-R-E-E, -E, he sounded out. Free. His drawling pronunciation left off the exclamation points. 
Jen turned to see the sign dangling from the headboard. He had read the word backwards and upside down. Maybe the remote schooling wasn't a total disaster. She peeled the sign off the headboard and gave it to Daniel. That's good, sweetheart. Why don't you go color this? Daniel took the paper and looked at the neighbor. I know what dog spells backwards, he told her. Mona something cleared something in her throat. She stepped out on the porch. Thanks again, Jen told her. Mona said, actually, thank you. I'm glad you took it in. Took it in? As if her castoffs were ne'er-do-well kin. Was Jen supposed to thank her yet again? Instead, she shut the door. Rosemary was now hovering in the den doorway, watching through the side windows as the woman shuffled home, head lowered, shoulders slumped. What did she want? Nothing. She was helping me carry this bed, Jen said. It was free, Daniel told Rosemary. Rebecca was old enough to put first things first. Who gets to sleep in it? Jen ruffled Daniel's hair. You do, little man. It's time you had a big boy bed. Both kids raised a ruckus then over all the fair and unfair reasons why he gets the new bed. The baby reeled off some somersaults that might be impressive if they weren't knocking against her diaphragm. Jen leaned against the mattress. Rosemary stared at her and then dropped her gaze to the enormous belly. Growing so quickly, Jen wondered if the baby planned to tear its way into the world through her very skin. So we need charity now, Rosemary asked quietly. Now that you're pregnant again, Jen could imagine Rosemary saying. Now that we move from the place where we belong. Now that we're stuck in the house because of a novel virus. Jen closed her eyes against Rosemary's accusing gaze, but who could blame her? Daughters were other women. They knew your tricks, the places you hid. They were merciless, even as they were crossing the foyer to ask if you were okay. Even as you were lying to them when you said, of course I am. It's nothing. Now I'm going to read a scene that occurs just a little bit later in the story when Jen goes to work. And what the reader needs to know is that from Rosemary's point of view, we have learned that Rosemary is involved in a mail fraud scheme with those neighbor kids that her mother is so eager for her to form a study group with. And as a part of that mail fraud, she actually is stealing the neighbor's mail and she inadvertently opens something of the next door neighbor, Mona something, and learns that Mona has actually lost a child recently. And Rosemary has put two and two together and realizes that this daybed probably belonged to this child who passed away. So although Rosemary and the reader knows this, Jen does not. So here's a scene where Jen is now um, right outside the Myers, about to start her shift. Jen always suited up in the car outside Meyer so the kids didn't see her leaving the house looking like a Star Wars stormtrooper. Face shield strapped to her brow, surgical mask secured underneath. Non-latex gloves, bright blue. These days you couldn't miss what your hands got up to. Before the pandemic, her tiny Honda had been filled with the typical mom ride junk. Crackers and juice boxes, tissues and wipes, Legos and crumbs were jammed between the seats. Mud and leaves caked the grooves of the floor mats. Now the car looked like a survivalist's pit stop. Lysol spray and paper towels, stockpiled early on, were piled in the hatch. High-protein nut pouches and Gatorade, 
for evenings like tonight when she'd missed dinner, filled the passenger seat. Spare masks and gloves were organized in the back seat, freed for the moment from the kids' car seats. The floor mats, like the rest of the car, were now squeaky clean. The steering wheel and the clutch knob glistened. She wiped them down so much. The virus had wreaked havoc on every possible aspect of her life, but her Honda hadn't looked this good in years. It was a tiny car, but it beat the house on the claustrophobia front. In fact, it was the first space in years she thought of as her very own. Jen self-reported her symptoms on the company's phone survey and stepped out of the car. A line of mass shoppers spaced six feet apart stretched from the store's lobby all the way down to the bus stop near the loading dock. Store greeters waved a shopper in as one left, like a turnstile at an amusement park. If the thrifty acres had already exceeded safe capacity, Jen's clients were about to be disappointed yet again on the essentials they were hoping would have been restocked after the pandemic's first shortages. Toilet paper, paper towels, and napkins. Same deal with flour and yeast and milk. Wipes and sanitizer, Lysol and Clorox, whiskey, gin, and wine. Antacids were flying off the shelves. The line reserved for the delivery service shoppers was moving briskly. She'd snagged so many batches during the kids' school that morning, she'd have to shop two orders at a time to fulfill them all. Once inside, she nabbed two carts, stowed her insulated bags under one, wiped down the handles. She pushed one, pulled another, hummed, the wheels on the cart go round and round. One benefit to this job, the baby loved to shop. Once the cart started rolling, the baby cooled his jets. She could almost enjoy this pregnancy as she stretched on tiptoe to nab a tiny jar of organic sun-dried tomatoes for a client's latest pandemic cooking project. Despite the store's limited entry policy, the aisles were crowded. Maintaining distance was the usual dance. Two steps towards the chicken breasts, five steps back when some beefy dude in a camel mask shoulder-checked her to grab the wings. Pregnant women didn't get the consideration they used to before the virus hit. Then again, wings were gold to a guy who didn't understand the mask was supposed to cover the nose, too. It wasn't long before she was texting her clients for substitutions. Besides the usual shortages, pie crusts were wiped out as if Thanksgiving were tomorrow. Ditto asparagus, avocados, and garlic. When Jen informed a client that toilet paper was a no-go, which should not have been any surprise, the client begged her to find any paper she could. By then, Jen's mask was musty with her own breath. She'd tussled with a teen over the last gallon of whole milk, triumphed in a war of glares with a pushy old man over instant oatmeal. She was sick of constant texting and fielding impossible requests. She took a photo of a pack of college-ruled paper and almost hit send, then caught herself in time. She checked out and made her delivery runs. Since the move to contactless delivery, her clients had lapsed along clear fault lines. Her regulars, usually the mothers, still opened the door for a socially distanced chat. The newer clients, who turned to delivery because COVID freaked them out, were masked and gloved shadows through a door's side window, eager for Jen to take her germs off their property. 
No doubt they had an arsenal of hoarded wipes at the ready to sponge down their gin and their capers. In those early days, it was easy to believe that the virus lived everywhere and anywhere. Then there were the thoughtless suburban teens reeking of weed who flung open the door to reveal unmasked grins, delighted that Jen, not the thoughtless teen, now ran to the store for mom and pop. Her downtown clients, the old hippies, the abashed yet frightened liberal academics, the techie shut-ins, offered to help her carry her bags and were visibly relieved when she cheerfully refused. One techie had rigged up a robot with a platform for Jen to load curbside. One ex-hippie tipped her in homegrown herbal supplements, smokables and edibles, and even some wearables. At least the anti-maskers out in the sticks still did their own shopping, so Jen never had to deal with scoffs at her face shield and outrageous claims that the virus was a hoax. As for her own neighbors, she had no idea how they shopped these days. She refused to deliver to any address too close to home. On her second to last run of the evening, after she'd piled boxes of chickpea pasta and jars of organic tomato basil sauce on the robot's platform, she texted Rosemary to ask how the evening was going. Fine, she learned. Dinner was boxed spaghetti and frozen meatballs. Dad called to say goodnight. Bex and Dan had video chatted while Rosemary drew their bath. They were soon to be in bed, and so was Rosemary. She was exhausted. Could you not check on us, Mom? The hall light always wakes me up. Of course, honey, sleep tight. Jen watched the robot bump the condo's front door. The techie, a young man sporting ripped jeans and a skimpy t-shirt, opened the door and grinned at the robot. A pat for his pet machine, but no thank you wave to Jen as she wiped down her phone and pulled away from the curb. Her last batches of the night should have been easier than they turned out to be. Neither client whined over the lack of toilet paper. One of Jen's well-meaning professor regulars texted to get baking powder when the yeast proved again to be missing in action. The client made a quip about whipping up powder milk biscuits instead of bread. Jen didn't get, but emojied the heck out of anyway. LOL, toothy smiley. But it seemed that every other item was just out of Jen's reach. She was short, it was true, but tonight the endless stretching was punishing. Most floor employees were social distancing themselves right into the stockroom and staying there, so there was never any help anymore. And the baby must be bored because he was kicking up a battle again with her vital organs. Her little bruiser, her featherweight champ, this baby was determined to knock her body to the mat in every single round of their nine-month match. Jen imagined stout shoulders, fists like ramrods, feet hard and hot like her grandmother's old sad iron. She was convinced that only a boy could throw such punches, but what if it were a girl? She'd be Jen's staunchest ally and most powerful foe, that's what. Chocolate chips were the last item on the professor's list. Chocolate was on everyone's list, and the pillage proved it. The toilet paper shelves were downright civilized compared to the ripped, scattered boxes Jen was poking through now to see if any bag remained standing. Only butterscotch and maple remained, cloying flavors absolutely no one caught in this pandemic craved. Jen was about to send the usual text, the store does not have the requested product, but as she stepped back to snap a photo of the lesser chips she could substitute upon request, 
She spied an overstock of the bright yellow bags of the real thing stashed on the upper shelf. Jen put away her phone and stretched to pinch one. The baby butted her diaphragm. Jen doubled over and belched. The bag of chips hit the tile and burst open. Now her mask reeked of stomach acid, Flop Sweat had mounted a campaign for domination of her brow, and she was ankle deep in chocolate. She was glad the aisle was empty so no one would see her sweeping the chips under the bottom shelf slip or make yet another comment about the novel risks of shopping these days, especially in her condition. As she straightened from hiding her mess, a flash of upbeat colors lit her face shield that may or may not be in the shape of flowers. Oh, hey, are you all right? Daisy's graced today's mask, locked in a jubilant chain right across Mona something's mouth. Her anxious tone skidded right up to Jen, but the woman herself maintained the requisite six feet that still felt invasive. Oh, yes, I'm just fine, Jen bubbled. Of course, Miss Daisy there wouldn't view a mask as liberation from makeup and perfect hair like every other woman did these days. She'd fixed her bob to sweep neatly behind the elastic straps. Her eyes were perfectly lined and shadowed. Rouge peeked from the mask's wings. The colors on her face matched the colors on her mask, all copper and gold. Jen wondered if she was smearing earth tone lipstick on the wrong side of her covering. And she was wearing the naturalizers to shop too. Jen's comfortable shopping blitz outfit Ripped padded jacket, bleeding stuffing tufts, Stone's concert t-shirt left over from a memorable date with the ex she'd never even married, the jeans stained with strained peas from Daniel's baby days, heads with the floppy tongues, now seemed hopelessly podunk. Mona something's gaze swept Jen's overflowing carts and her insulated bags. Her own cart had all of six items in it, none of them essential or in short supply. She was clearly honoring the anti-hoarding requests the store had posted at every aisle. Her stare dropped to Jen's belly. Peace out, Jen wanted to say. It really is just a baby in there. Mona something stuttered. Are you working? Geez, hadn't this woman ever held a job? Jen sized her up. The woman easily had four inches on her. Yes, I am. Do you think you can reach these chocolate chips for me? Mona shrank from her, but maybe distance, not stature, was the problem. Jen put her back to the tuna fish section. She must be eight feet away now. Mona nabbed a bag, no tiptoes necessary, darn her, and placed it gingerly in Jen's lead cart. She stepped back to her own cart, flipped sanitizer from a side pocket of her coach purse, and squirted her hands. Jen's handbag, hand-quilted by Rosemary years ago, flopped, stained, and frayed in the seat of her cart. At least it was virus-proof, since it was cloth, as far as anyone knew. Thanks, Jen took hold of both carts to trundle to the registers. Mona raised her glistening hands. But, hey, can I help you with those? Jen sighed. Really, I'm fine, but thanks, again. I mean, can I help you, like, deliver that stuff? Jen would have turned her back right then and stalk rolled down the aisle. Enough was enough. Except that Mona something's eyeliner was smudged. Under both eyes. In fact, it was gooey. The daisy chain across her mouth sagged. 
An employee turned a dolly into the aisle, piled with boxes of chicken broth. He spied Mona's tears from six feet away. Can I help you? He asked anxiously. Glanced at dry-eyed Jen nervously. Dropped his gaze to her belly and then to the chips she'd concealed, which from his distance would not be hidden at all. We're having a moment here, she told him. Just look at this mess. I mean, we're really freaking out about this chocolate situation, you know? Mona's daisies perked back up. No, the stock guy didn't know just how freaked out a pregnant woman and her well-heeled neighbor might become over a run on chocolate, and he didn't want to find out. He wheeled the dolly towards the soup section hastily. He didn't even call for a cleanup on aisle six. Jen grinned back at Mona, a smile Mona would sense, not see, behind the shield and the mask. No way was Jen going to let this woman do her job for her, but she did swap carts. Mona wrestled the two carts all the way to the register, like a newbie waitress learning to balance all those plates on the tray. Jen enjoyed pushing Mona's mini cart with the six circumspect items. What shopping used to look like before she was feeding her husband and then her kids, and before she knew it, her whole community. That was Laura Holthan Thomas reading Underlying Conditions, a original work of short fiction that was excerpt for us here on the podcast. And if you want to find out more, we will be linking to information about Laura Holthan Thomas's collection of short stories, States of Motion. The eight stories featured in States of Motion follow tough, quixotic characters that are struggling to reinvent themselves even as they cling to what they've lost appreciate Laura Holt and Thomas being on this podcast. Appreciate all the local authors that have been able to be featured here on this podcast, which is brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. We produce it in-house here at the Ferndale Area District Library. I am your host, Jeff Milo. Music was provided by John Duffy, and we thank you for listening. Um.